Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. In the 21st century, many chefs are considered to be superstars, comparable to celebrities of stage and screen. But their rise to fame and fortune doesn't happen overnight. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we're learning the stories of chefs whose hard work and creativity led them up the ladder of success. We begin with executive chef Tori McPhail of Commander's Palace fame. Through determination and dedication to his craft, the James Beard award-winning chef has secured his place among a cavalcade of celebrated chefs. He tells us about his journey, and then we speak with Alfred Singleton of Café Spisa in the French Quarter. Alfred's path to becoming chef and co-owner of the historic restaurant began in the kitchen of his family's poor boy shop in the Lower Ninth Ward. He shares stories of his culinary rise to the top and the importance mentorship played during his journey. Famed chef Jeremiah Tower has mentored many. But unraveling who mentored who when it comes to his early career at Chez Panisse with Alice Waters is like trying to figure out what came first, the chicken or the egg. You can learn the answer to that in the 2017 documentary about Jeremiah, entitled The Last Magnificent. We're spending the next hour with some real magnificence on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name's Tori McPhail, and I'm the executive chef of Commander's Palace. It's no secret that the kitchen at Commander's Palace has a long celebrated history, cultivating such revered chefs as Emeril Lagasse, Paul Prudhomme, and Jamie Shannon. It's a tough act to follow, but through determination and dedication to his craft, Tori McPhail has secured his place as part of Commander's legacy. In 2016, we spoke to the James Beard Award-winning chef about his career. Topics included his relationship with the late Jamie Shannon and his boss, Ella Brennan, who would pass away less than two years after our conversation in 2018. I began by asking Tori what it was like to be the executive chef of such a revered institution as Commander's Palace. You know, even though I've been there for as long as I have, I still get goosebumps walking up to the front door, you know, because you, you park your car and then you walk down the side of this old historic cemetery and you see the old oak trees in a quiet neighborhood. And, you, you know, you, you know you're in New Orleans and all of a sudden you, you come around that old familiar bend and you see this gorgeous blue and white Victorian mansion and all of a sudden the hair on the back of your neck stands up. You start to get goosebumps. You're like... Oh my God, I mean, this is Commander's. I mean, it's such a, a legendary place and it means so much to everybody, but to every single New Orleanian. I mean, 
how, how many special occasions do you share at Commanders? You know, how many of Grandma's birthdays or little Johnny's uh, soccer games? So for me to be there as long as I have and to follow in the footsteps of Paul Perdome, right? Amazing legend, our friend Emerald Lagasse and Jamie Shannon, man, I don't think there's anything better. I honestly have the coolest job on the planet to be able to guide a ship like that to stardom. Well, I have lots of things I'd like to know, but I'd really like to start off by hearing from you how you came to be part, such an important part today, Mm -hmm. of that Commander's Palace family. So I've worked in Commander's three different times. I've also worked at the Palace Cafe. We opened up Commander's Palace in Las Vegas in 2000. And then we opened up um, Commander's in Destin, uh, I guess back in 2008. Um, so I'm very proud to be working with the Brennans as long as I have. And I have maybe more of a little unusual story than probably the, the typical New Orleans chef, being that, number one, I'm, I'm not from here. I'm not even from this half of the United States. I grew up in a tiny little farming town in Washington State. So for me growing up, it was all about agriculture, picking four ears of corn or digging four potatoes or doing what we had to do. So I went through culinary school after leaving my uncle's raspberry farm and moving down to Seattle when I was just uh, 17 and went through culinary school there. And I took some really good advice leaving culinary school. They said, look, man, if you really want to be a great chef, you either move to New York City, but if you want to understand cooking and food and cuisine and flavor, then you move to New Orleans. And if you're lucky enough, if you're lucky enough to get an interview, try to go to Commander's Palace and see Jamie Shannon. And so I did that. I was 19 years old and got an interview and aced my test. And then Jamie hired me to start working in the Garmage. And that's been 23 years ago. Wow. So you were 19 when you started. Mm-hmm. Tell me about what that was like to get to know Paul Prudhomme or Emeril. I guess going back through my career, I mean, I started uh, understanding who Emeril was in my early years here in New Orleans. I didn't have the opportunity to really meet him until probably uh, maybe like the earlier mid-90s. Emeril was the best man in Jamie's wedding. And so we always had this connection to commanders, plus all of his buddies were there. So Emeril started coming in, and I was, you know, starstruck. And then Paul kind of the same time. Paul always used to be so nice and so gracious to every single person, every walk of life. Um, but to start to get the guy, know the guys more and more, I started climbing through the commander's ladder. And it didn't matter where we were. If I was meeting Paul in Chicago, if I was seeing Emerald in Miami, um, <clears throat> they would always stop and say, hey, Tori, how are you? How's Jamie? How's Ella? How's T and Lally? The rest of the gang. And then <clears throat> as the years progressed, um, uh, you know, things started happening with Jamie. And so even now, when I see Emerald, he's kind of like a big brother. You yeah. know what I mean? He's kind of like that favorite uncle you've always kind of had and a guy that I will always look up to. Well, I heard the hesitation in your voice, and this mm-hmm. is something that we've discussed with T, and it's a really difficult subject matter to even touch on for any of us who knew him and were involved in the New Orleans mm-hmm. food scene mm-hmm. during Jamie Shannon's incredible tenure at commander's palace Mm -hmm. because although he was such a larger than life presence Mm -hmm. he he died when he was 40 he never had the opportunity to become a food network star or open his own restaurant commander's was his life and and sadly when he lost his life that was his Mm -hmm. last spot yeah um 
you know, Commanders uh, was huge for Jamie. And um, I kind of felt like the names were kind of synonymous with fantastic cooking. Uh, he's been gone now for about 14 years. And, and, you know, for me as a kid, I mean, he was the guy you saw five and six days a week. Big guy, he was like 6'3", probably 225, literally larger than life. Then when he puts on the crisp chef's jacket and a long white apron and then puts another foot of chef's hat on, on top of that, the guy comes walking in and there is no question who the chef of that restaurant is. And at that time, you know, Emerald was really doing his thing and Frank Brighton and um, Susan Spicer and um, a lot of other chefs are starting to make their way up. But he was, you know, kind of like the crown of New Orleans at that time for New World uh, Creole food. And in the conversation, you can't leave out the 1980s-something convertible red BMW that was unmistakably Jamie. And I got to tell you, man, there's probably things I, I can't say on the radio, but as, as young cooks coming up through the ranks, I mean, that guy on a Saturday night would hold court in any other magazine little drinking establishment. And that was it. You know, the guy walks into, you know, even the bar like the Le Bon Tom Roulette, where that was kind of like our clubhouse. And it was Jamie's clubhouse. And it wasn't just the commander's folks. It was, you know, everybody from all of Uptown. You know, you walk into Le Bon Tom, which was the place to be. And there you see Jamie's um, BMW parked in the front, top down. And it was wild. Uh, I, I, I love the guy on for so many reasons uh, in the restaurant and out of the restaurant. He was just a, a great mentor and um, such a good, um, kind of like a player's coach. You know what I mean? Like somebody that everybody could look up to. Yeah, he was probably sick for maybe um, longer than any of us knew about, longer than any of us, longer than he would tell anybody. And he started, you know, just kind of walking with a a bit of a limp. And he's like, yeah, you know, I used to play hockey growing up in Jersey. Um, And it was just kind of one of those things. He's like, yeah, my hip kind of hurts, hip kind of hurts. And he just kind of went on and on and finally got the whole thing checked out and then ended up that uh, he had cancer. I was in Las Vegas at the time and uh, it was tough. Um, you know, when he, when he calls you and says, Hey, look, I got, I got cancer. This is the deal. They amputated my leg. I mean, how can you not just like ball crying, crying on the telephone? I mean, that's your mentor. That's, that's the guy. That's the guy you've always looked up to is, you know, being 2000 miles away from home and that's family. You know what I mean? So to take that call and have that conversation and have him say, Hey man, come back to the, come back to New Orleans, come back to the commander's team. You know, I want you to be my eyes and ears and my legs so we can continue to push commanders forward. I mean, that just, you know, goes right to your heart. It's a tough telephone call, tough day. You know, when I first got back, um, you know, we had the the deal worked out where I was going to move back um, to New Orleans. And so it was the day after Thanksgiving. I think it was November 26th at about 11.15 in the morning. Uh, I was serving family meal to all the rest of the staff. I put on my Chef White's for the very first time, it says Commander's Palace, Las Vegas, executive sous chef, Tori McPhail. And so I slip on the whites, <clears throat> put on my chef's hat, put on my apron, and I'm bouncing around the kitchen for like an hour, introducing myself to uh, new cooks, new sous chefs, reintroducing myself with old friends that I've worked with for over a long, long time. And on my fir- very first day back, he passed away. And <clears throat> we always knew things were close, but um, certainly towards the end, things slipped down the slope pretty quickly but to have that happen I could just see T's face 
Lally's face walking through the patio, and I'm making eye contact with them. They're looking at me. I get to see the their face, and I just I just knew. And um, there was just this lull over commanders, this kind of dark cloud for so long. But it's it's tough to say, hey, look, I'm going to help run the show, but. I wasn't Jamie. I was never going to be Jamie. You know, he was always the chef of the restaurant. And so there was, it was a tough patch for probably like four months, pushing forward and saying, hey, look, you know, we're not rushing to do anything. I just want to live up to his legacy and keep pushing forward uh, just like he would have. Tell me about you and Ella. When I interviewed her not so long ago, she said the number one overriding element that was the continuous thread from Paul all the way to you is that you've got magic in your hands. Mm-hmm. So when did she first tell you that? Um, I imagine at some point after I became chef, um, you know, we had a lot of great conversations. We ate a lot of good food together. Um, but I think being the chef at Commander's Palace or any great organization has certainly you need to be a fantastic cook. You need to understand flavor. You need to be a good historian of Louisiana food. Um, but you, you got to be a good friend. You got to be a good listener. You got to be a good mentor. You have to be a good role model. You have to. You just you have to. You need to know how to take a kid from the neighborhood and teach him how to be more than he probably thinks he's capable of. A really understand, hey, look, here, this is where you're at, but this is, you know, you follow this path and you give the guy goals and help shape that, greatness can come from people who may not know that they have it in them. And I think um, I think that's one of the things Ella's always been great at, whether it happens to be Paul or Emeril or Jamie. She's allowed us to make mistakes, but kind of reveal more of our character through hard work and dedication every day and her guidance. What do you want your legacy at <clears throat> Commander's Palace to be? So I think I think for me, following the footsteps of all the great great guys, um, I guess at the end of the day, if more people can say, hey, you know what, Tori McPhail taught me more about cooking and more about restaurants, but really more about how to be a really good guy, I think that's probably better than any kind of paycheck I'd ever earn. Um, you know, certainly I've helped push commanders forward, and I'm the longest sitting chef they've ever had, and worked there longer than anybody else. But to really to, to to leave a a lasting indelible mark on the community and helping to inspire and change the lives of everybody who's always worked under me. I mean, I think that would be the lasting legacy uh, of my career at Commanders. That was Tori McPhail, executive chef of Commander's Palace, speaking with us back in 2016. Coming up next, we speak with Chef Alfred Singleton, who co-owns the historic Cafe Sabisa in New Orleans' French Quarter. Louisiana Eats returns after a break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, 
a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and with support from Ralph's on the Park, overlooking City Park's ancient oaks, serving locally sourced Gulf seafood, meats, and farm-fresh produce, all presented with a global spin by Chef Chip Flanagan. Lunch, dinner, Saturday and Sunday brunch, and private parties at 900 City Park Avenue in Mid-City. Alfred Singleton is chef and co-owner of the historic Café Sabisa in New Orleans' French Quarter. His role in the popular Creole restaurant comes after a lifetime in the business. Born and raised in the Lower Ninth Ward, Alfred spent nights and weekends at his family's poor boy shop, peeling potatoes and shrimp. His career took a trajectory when he took a job as a dishwasher at Baco. From there, Alfred worked his way up the ranks at some of the Crescent City's best restaurants. So how does a chef with no formal training go from dishwasher to business owner? We spoke with Alfred to hear his remarkable story. Well, chef, I have to tell you, I have a huge amount of admiration for you. I, Thank you. Thank you. You, you. You are a special guy, and... Actually, your life with food started when you were just a little boy of five. Yes. You worked in a family restaurant. Yeah, well, my family owned a small sandwich shop in the Lower Ninth Ward. It was called Ross Restaurant uh, on the other side of the Industrial Canal. We we did everything from poor boys to Creole favorites, gumbo, etouffees, and, uh, of course, great bread puddings and sweet potato pies and things like that. So... A lot of Southern influence inside of that restaurant. So approximately what year was it when your family started that restaurant? Uh, it was in the early 70s, and it lasted until the late 80s. Um, and uh, my godmother got older, and um, you know she just wanted to get out of the business. So at late 80s, about 89, I believe, was when she got out of the restaurant. What are your earliest memories of being in a restaurant kitchen? Just peeling shrimp and peeling potatoes, helping out, just being a rug rat around the kitchen, <laughs> bothering everybody that was there, but also um, just being real passionate about it, wanting to do it and wanting to uh, be a part of something. So when you first started cooking, what were the things that you were cooking up there? Well, I was into the pool boys heavy, you know, and, and she was real famous for uh, her her pool boys and her hot sausage sandwiches and her hamburgers because they were all bread lent and the way they constructed their patties and the meats that went on those sandwiches were real real unique so um, no other place in the city were doing that I mean and and, and they would call them up the arm sandwiches up the arm sandwiches up the arm sandwiches <laughs> because they were they they do it up the arm and it'd be forearm lent. And that went on to the griddle to, to cook. So, you know, that, that to me was just amazing. And I always wanted to learn to do that. And that was probably the first thing that I learned to do besides peeling shrimp and potatoes. At what point did you decide to pursue a life in food? I was a sophomore in high school um, when I actually began my journey in, in the food industry. Um, you know, the first thing I did was I, I walked into Ralph Brennan Baco. And um, 
I just wanted a job at the at that point. And when I walked into the restaurant, you know, they were cleaning a whole salmon, and I was applying for a dishwasher job. And you know, immediately, you know, when I saw him cleaning a salmon, I was like, I want to do that. You know, the the feeling that took over me when I saw that 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 let me know that you know, food is my passion and. That's what I wanted to do. So from a sophomore in high school, I was always in the kitchen around food and real ambitious about what was happening. And, you know, it just paid off for me. <laughs> well, you didn't go to culinary school. No, no. You know, you were sort of born into this life. Right. You were at Cafe Sabisa a long time ago. So when did your career there begin? Um, I believe it was 96, 97. I went to Cafe Sabisa. I walked in the door, and I was hired um, as a Barca f- food runner. I was hired as that. And that's where I actually met Alan Hequis, um, who was uh, the executive chef at Cafe Sabisa. Um, and ironically, about my second or third week there, uh, the guy who was the sous chef at Cafe Sabisa, he decided he didn't want to work there anymore, and you know he just went on went away. So we were short in the kitchen, and um, I was still a food runner busser. And I told Alan, I was like, "Man, let me let me you know try this, let me do this." And uh, they put me there, and and I mean it was like clockwork. They were like, "You're a natural." They also they, they didn't call me Alfred; they called me Fred, and I can hear. <laughs> Fred, you're a natural. And, and you know, so they began to work with me. And Alan was an instructor at the Culinary Institute of New Orleans uh, when it was up on St. Charles Avenue uh, for a long time. And uh, he saw that in me and decided that uh, he wanted to mentor me. And I told him, I said, I want to go to culinary school and really learn this. He was like, you know, don't waste the money, Fred. Let me teach you personally. And he did. I mean, he gave me books and, and that were uh, distributed at the Culinary Institute of New Orleans. He gave me tests. You know, he quizzed me all the time about certain things and really just uh, began to, you know, just to teach me and mentor me in food and flavors and understand it. The first thing he really did was really taught me how to get around the kitchen, you know, taught me about different pans and spoons and just kitchen staples. He He really taught me the verbiage and the things that I really needed uh, to, to be successful. And they went from one extreme to the next. And, you know, before you know it, you know, I'm creating specials and, and, and doing these things that, and, you know, in my first and second year in the business, which was amazing. So um, I was just real happy to have that opportunity to, to take on that, that challenge and, and have him mentor me. And then you left Cafe Sabisa for a while. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe three years later, I followed Alan uh, to the Red Room on St. Charles Avenue uh, when it was the Red Room. Carlos Gear was leaving to go to Commander's Palace in Las Vegas. Um, so I worked with Alan Heckwitz. He called me. He was like, you know, I want you to come up and I want you to be my miniature sous chef. That's what he told me. <laughs> and I was like, man, I don't know nothing about being a sous chef. He's like, you're going to be fine. Trust me. So I went there. And the Red Room was a supper club, you know, and it, it turned to like a nightclub after hours. And um, but what was great about that, it was it was me seeing a different cuisine. You know, I went from Creole to French American kind of Mediterranean cooking. So four years in the business and, you know, I'm already versed in three different cuisines, you know, and, and 
it just went from there. I mean, that that was awesome. So I stayed at uh, the Red Room for about two years, and then I went back to Cafe Sabisa. Craig called me, and he was like, I want you to be my chef. And I'm just like, man, you got to be kidding me. So th- so now you get your first big chef job. Right. And I and and, and listen, I I was I was if there's another word for frightened, that was me. <laughs> because I had no idea what I was doing. I really didn't. And so at this point, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm 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 pulling away from Allen. I'm on my own. So now I need to self-educate. I need to read books. I need to buy books. I used to drive my wife crazy with you know, the way I was buying cookbooks and, and, and things like that because I just, I knew I had to get it because now it's like, okay, you're at the top. You're the guy. So you have to really, you know, impress and and, and you have to put your money where your mouth is. Um, it took me a long time to understand the business, the operational side of the business, you know, the numbers and the labor and uh, the food costs and ordering pars and, and that's where I had Craig Napoli who who took some time to show me like no you go to him and tell them they need to give you a better price and if they don't give you a better price you're going to someone else and um, you know so he helped me along the way with that so you know when I left there uh, I went to the Dickie Brennan family which you, you know that's that's the first family of food in this city you know, I spent some time working for Dickie and, and you know, that family and um, just the values and, and morals that they instill in you when you work for them. Um, those really pay dividends in, in, in your, your path to success. So i um, very thankful to have that opportunity to work for that family and, 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 you know, lead their kitchens as well. So And the management, you know, yeah. do you see yourself as just being uh a natural leader because you're the lead dog in the kitchen, you know, you you gotta be at the head of the team. Well, your personality is everything in the kitchen. And, um, you know, you, you, you really have to know how to manage a ton of personalities because you're going to have people from all walks of life. And, um, and, and it took me a long time to get this, but I learned this working for Dickie that, you know, about giving people the benefit of the doubt because you never know what they're going through. So my direction is there. When I want something, you know I want it. And I don't have to yell. I don't have to throw pots and pans or I don't have to kick trash cans because I, I form relationships with my people. You know, I always tell them whether it's personal or, 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 or professional, you can talk to me about any situation and I'm going to give you the best advice that I can possibly give you. But also, you know, you have to know that I have a job to do. And the business won't suffer, you know, for you being a bad apple, you know, and I'm, you know, and, and, I, and just how we're talking right now, mm. this is how this is how level I am at all times in the kitchen. So now you have your own restaurant. You're a partner in a restaurant. Right. Well, I was um, lucky enough to have been there the evening that you all had your big open house welcome party. Mm-hmm. And I know your parents were there. Yes. yes. And. What did they have to say about this? You know, my parents are so proud of what I've done. Um, and, you know, um, I, I've i kind of defeated the odds uh, for an African-American male in the city of New Orleans, of course. Um, but, you know, my parents, have they've been so supportive and so proud of everything that I've accomplished. And, and you know, my mom is recovering from a stroke and she 
all November 11th was the first day that she's done anything since she's had the stroke. And that's how much that meant to her. She's walking, but she's not fully walking the way that, you know, she wants to be. And she's still rehabbing, you know, as far as that's concerned. But she just had to be there. You know, my father, you know, he's a couch potato. <laughs> you know, he, he worked all of his life. He retired. And now he's just he just wants to be home and watch sports all day. He don't want to get out of the house or do anything. So this meant enough to him for him to get out of the house. To him for him to come and I was just so honored to have them um, they've never saw me in my element they've never saw me you know a, as as a chef owner or you know professionally whenever I'm around I'm you know we're, we're family so we're all relaxed and things like that so that was the first time that they've really ever saw me in my element so I was just so excited and my mom she, she's a hard person to please she she doesn't like much, but what she likes, she likes, and that's it. You know, chicken is her thing. <laughs> chicken, like any, you do chicken any kind of chicken and crab. So she always say, oh, "Man, you you cooking that fancy five star food? I need one star food." That's what she always <laughs> tells me. I'm like, "You have to try something different." So she came in and and she tried. I mean, she was just so impressed, you know, by the level of service that she received, how warm and welcome the staff made her feel. Um, she never goes and, and writes reviews for anything. And she went and wrote a review. Wow. Like, I mean, but so she was, she was just so impressed and, and you know, they're, they're just so proud of where I've come and how I've grown because I was a troublemaker as a teenager. <laughs> I really was and, and, you know, nobody really never saw this coming. and. I'm just so excited that, you know, I can do something to make my family proud and, um, you know, just kind of um, be different. That was Chef Alfred Singleton of Cafe Spisa. You can hear the entire conversation at poppytooker.com. What does it cost today to get a bachelor's degree in culinary arts? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? Visit poppytooker.com to listen. While there, you can also subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats.
here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What does it cost today to get a bachelor's degree in culinary arts? The first year's tuition in most college-level culinary schools runs between twenty-five and thirty thousand dollars. Your first year at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, the place most considered the creme de la creme of cooking schools, runs over forty thousand dollars. So you graduate from the CIA after four years with as much as $160,000 in college debt. Any idea what most starting salaries are for young aspiring chefs with degrees? <laughs> let's not even go there. Instead, let's take a look at another culinary program that Louisiana should be proud of, that Culinary Institute on the Bayou at Nichols State University in Thibodeau. If you're an in-state student, your first year's tuition is about $8,000. Even out-of-state tuition is a bargain at less than $18,000. I'm Poppy Tooker, and both the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts and the John Foles Culinary Institute at Nichols State University is something we should all be proud of. My name is Jeremiah Tower. I'm a chef and author of cookbooks, and I'm a scuba diver. <laughs> People ask me, well, do you have a business card? And I say, no. And they say, well, why not? I said, well, I don't know what to put on it. Well, I can think of a few things. Jeremiah Tower has led a legendary career that has spanned multiple countries and earned several awards. Beginning his career at Alice Waters Chez Panisse in Berkeley, Jeremiah transported his culinary vision along the California coast, opening his landmark San Francisco restaurant, Stars, in 1984. Stars became a template for new American cuisine and helped establish him as one of the world's first celebrity chefs. In April 2017, Jeremiah became the subject of an impassioned documentary produced by the late Anthony Bourdain. Jeremiah joined us in the studio shortly after its premiere to discuss the film and how his relationship with Bourdain had evolved over the years. Our conversation began with Jeremiah taking us back to his unlikely culinary origins. Well, my training was being ignored by my parents, you know, which in the right location is an amazing education. I mean, they traveled all over the world first class with me. I mean, I was, went around the world twice before I was 16. Um, but then, you know, when I was 30, my grandfather died and my allowance stopped. So I figured, you know, there was a terrible shock. <laughs> I bet. That I had to actually work for a living, you know, and I didn't know what, I was trained as an architect in uh, graduate school at Harvard and then I went out on the world, and it turns out I was a lousy architect. And then in San Francisco, I ran out of money, so I took the first job that I could find, which was as a, as a chef in this little restaurant called Chez Panisse in Berkeley. Oh, just some little restaurant in Berkeley called Chez Panisse. Well, it was a little and restaurant. How did, you know. how, but how did you get the job as chef? What, were, what was your qualification? 
Well, they were more desperate than I was. (laughs) (laughs) They said, come and be interviewed at 6 o'clock on a certain day. And I showed up at 6 o'clock. And, of course, that shows you how little they knew about the restaurant business because at 6 o'clock is when your first customers are served. You don't give interviews, you know, then. So they said, oh, no, no, come, you know, we can't talk to you. Come back tomorrow. So I went out on the sidewalk. And then I thought, wait a minute. This just cost me $5.25 the bus here and to go back. So I went back inside and I said, look, you told me to be here at 6 o'clock. I was, and I want my interview. And they said, no, we can't talk to you, can't talk to you. And Alice, well, I didn't know, but was standing there and said, we'll do something to the soup. And there was this huge pot of soup because everybody got soup and there was only one menu for everyone. And I tasted it and I added salt and cream because I probably put cream in everything in those days and they tasted and went wow (laughs) (laughs) come back tomorrow and I did and they interviewed me and I gave them some menus and the next thing I knew I was the executive chef and the first day I showed up there was no one in the kitchen I was on my own so I just thought well I'm just going to cook whatever I know how to do you know how long had Chez Penny's been open at the time you went to work there about a year well, those were very exciting times. Yes, and it's hard to for anyone to think back how simple those times were. When I say there were no fresh herbs, I mean, let's face it, everything in Whole Foods in those days didn't exist at all. No olive oil, no fresh herbs, no, I mean, the cheeses were Vela Jack, mm-hmm. which I didn't know, I'd never cooked with, didn't know how to cook with it properly. Um, so I refused to cook with anything except perfect perfect ingredients. And there weren't any. So we set about finding them. And that's where f- that foraging came from. Well, from that period of time, when you look back on it, what were the best of times and what were the worst of times? There were a few worst times. I mean, there was one when the dishwasher cut off his finger and it was <gasps> in the bottom of the sink. And it was very dirty, you know, oily water. And there was a, we sent him to the hospital with a busboy or some, a taxi. And there was a call on the kitchen phone, and it was the hospital saying, Well, where's the finger? <gasps> I went, You know, uh-huh. as a chef, I don't think about fingers that much. <laughs> but, you know, you could, I couldn't ask anyone else to go into that sink. So I was in there with my two hands, trying, going around the bottom of the sink until I found the finger. And, you know, there were no Ziploc bags in those days. So we'd put it in saran wrap and send it in another taxi over to the hospital. That, that's a typical restaurant day. <laughs> well, that's kind of a rough day. But if the, you ask me. the highlight, you know, was when we did uh, blue trout, live trout cooked to order, which we'd brought up on a big truck from Big Sur. Evenings like that, that was the champagne dinner. That was brilliant. The California Regional Dinner in 1976, when I finally said, why are we beating our heads against the wall with, you know, trying to cook food from Corsica or Brittany or whatever, since we are using the best of the local ingredients, why not just call it that? So I'd put on, in 1976, I put on the California Regional Dinner. The menu was in, in English. The wines were all from California. And that's what caught the press's imagination, that caught James Beard's imagination. And he wrote endlessly about it. Well... You leave that sort of charming, intimate Chez Panisse, and not too terribly long later, you end up with the amazing phenomena that was stars. 
Tell us about your time at Stars. We could never have done Stars if I'd just gone cold into it the way I did at Chez Panisse. I had a team, a core team, together by that time. At the opening day, the people at the reception desk said to me, so what kind of restaurant is it? Of course, nobody had read the, the handbook that we'd handed out to the staff. So I said, well, you know, it's an American brasserie. And they said, what's the dress code? I said, everything from blue jeans to black tie. So at the end of the night, I went over to them and said, okay, so, you know, what was the feedback? And she said, every time I said American brasserie, everybody went, oh, yeah, fine. And I said, well, that's more than we know. I have no clue what an American <laughs> brasserie is. And she said they loved everything from blue jeans to black tie, which, of course, is how it turned out. The food, again, we did the different menu every day. It was just whatever we wanted to do that you could do for 500 people for dinner, you know. 500 people, what an enormous number. The, the most we ever did was 701, and that's when I was working the door. And the busboys were so terrified of me that they cleared the tables twice as fast. We did 701 instead of 500. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the kitchen begged me never to be on the door again, you know. Do you have any particular memories of some characters who we may or may not know that you saw some interesting things created in the dining room between people? Well, I mean, one of my favorite memories is Danielle Steele on the opening night of the opera. And she was seated, you know, on table 25, which is the sort of most visible but also protectable table at Stars. And she came in and she told, warned me in advance, you know, that the, the Dior was $200,000 a dress, the diamonds were a few million, that kind of thing. So, Jeremiah, please, she said, no red wine within 10 feet of my table, you know. And, of <laughs> course, I knew that, you know, she was in this perfect dress, which fit perfectly. She'd have a green salad, but no dressing because you couldn't have olive oil on this Dior. So the, the staff were in a, you know, they were just so excited. They figured, oh, my God, you can, that's my rent payment for the month, you know. And so I said to the waiter, no, no, you, you do that, you know. But the table behind her is your big tip. It was two couples, underage, so I served them champagne all night long, <laughs> sort of out for the prom, you know. And they mm. didn't know anything. They were, had never seen anything like that before. And he and I waited on both tables. And I, you know, poured the champagne for the young couple so that the waiter wouldn't get arrested. And that was typical stars. And Daniel Steele just thought that was, she told me later, amazing that I'd put, you know, these two, four babies right next to her. You know, when you have uh, a restaurant that famous, and sooner or later everybody in the world walks through it. And so when you've got, you know, uh, Pavarotti and my great pal Rudolf Nureyev and Barbara Streisand and, you know, on and on and on, the Kirk Douglas, Gregory Peck, I mean, all of Hollywood and Washington, the Reagans coming through, all of that, you get a bit, at least I would get a bit blasé, not blasé, but I would just get a bit bored with all that glamour, you know. Mm. So, <laughs> <laughs> You mean you weren't you know, starstruck at stars? Well, I was in the beginning, but then, you know, I was too, <laughs> too struck, you know, the sort of wasn't struck anymore. So when somebody, kids like that or students would come in, or the young corps de ballet, you know, who had no money, I would, of course, pay for them all, you know, because that added a huge atmosphere to stars. It wasn't just the f most famous people in the world. I mean, they attracted customers, okay, but that's a pretty boring scene if that's all it is. 
So now at this point in your life, Anthony Bourdain decides to make a documentary about you. What did you think when he approached you about this? It must be a very odd and kind of spooky feeling at the same time. Well, not as spooky as having to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) That's really weird. No, but when he asked me, I thought, hold on a second. Ten years ago, Anthony Bourdain said I was a traitor for leaving the industry, okay? A year or two after that, he said I was a train wreck. Then a couple of years after that, he said the first vaguely nice thing about (laughs) me. And a couple of years after that, he met him and he said, oh, Jeremiah, you know, I really admire you. And I'm thinking, you do? Then I met him in New York and he, you know, Anthony, of course, is incredibly charming. He's probably the most brilliant person I've ever met, the way he can verbalize all the huge knowledge that he has very well. I, I, I adore him. Anyway, so I said, yeah, okay, I mean, it's a very weird idea, but, you know, he's very persuasive. So I said, yeah, and they said, well, would you do a test? And then he told me a few things about meeting Alice Waters. When Anthony called her the Paul Pot of the culinary world or the Khmer Rouge of the culinary world or something. And I just thought, that's pretty extreme, you know. So my private theory is that he was so pissed at Alice, he thought he'd do a a movie about me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations, no matter how it comes about. It's a wonderful thing to be immortalized like this. So how is it to watch yourself in a documentary? What are we going to see and learn about you when we see this? It's, it's a very strange feeling. The first time I saw it, it was in a big theater, empty theater in New York, because the director, Lydia Tenalia, who's brilliant from 0.0, she thought I'd be really pissed off, but I was actually too stunned because it's to see yourself on the big screen, especially when you know it's a version of your life, Then the second time I saw it was at the Tribeca Film Festival on a big screen. And there was dead silence for what seemed like forever. It was probably five minutes, but it seemed like 20 minutes. And I turned to Lydia sitting next to me and I said, run for it. (laughs) And then some woman giggled and the whole place cracked up. So then then it was fine. And I decided, you know, there's no point doing this unless you just blab. Yeah. You know, don't try and sculpt it, you know, for the best press or something. I mean, if it was going to be a fluff job, it would just be stupid. So I didn't. So the first question was, what was your father like? And out of my mouth, I was jet lagged and tired and didn't have a glass of champagne. So I said, he was a prick. And I went, oh, my God. What have I just (laughs) said? (laughs) I don't know where that came from. You know, after, you know, 50 years of wanting to say it, I guess. I don't know. But once I'd said it, I thought I relaxed and went, okay, whatever. Well, you were certainly, I think, prepared to take that task on because you, of course, wrote a very, very frank memoir. And, you know, memoirs are very popular these days, but not everybody really manages to take such um, a long, hard look at themselves and just tell the truth. And um, you you really pulled that off. Thank you. And I have to say, it has been 
such an incredible honor to have this opportunity to sit and visit and have this very frank conversation with one of the greats in American food, Jeremiah Towers. Thank you, Jeremiah. Thank you, Bobby. The honor is mine. That was chef, restaurateur, and author Jeremiah Tower speaking to us back in 2017. The Last Magnificent is currently streaming on Netflix. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find our full broadcasts along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport-Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from the Palace Cafe, home of the weekend jazz brunch featuring a build-your-own-bloody-mary bar located in the historic Whirline Music Building on Canal Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>